Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We are back, hopefully, to conclude this excellent book, Faith and Reason. Philosophers explain their turn to Catholicism. And uh, we, we didn't quite finish uh, the eighth chapter, uh, so I'm told we're on page 220 thereabouts. Uh, I'll make a general comment what we've done so far. Both of you are converts, I'm not. Uh, but even if you're converts, to see how people come to the faith, they may ask questions that you didn't ask or others don't ask. And it's fascinating to see these people on a real quest and seeing problems, seeing objections, going further and going deeper, having friends, reading books. And it really, to me, uh, revivifies my Catholic faith to, to see the, you know, why these people went from somewhere else to the Catholic Church, especially at this time in the church when there are a lot of reasons why one would be not attracted to it. Anyway, back to this chapter. Uh, we're on page 220. Joseph, do you have some things you want to say? Yeah, well, as you say, you know, that as a convert, I, I, I've been fascinated by the conversion stories, and that's, you know, I wrote books such as Literary Converts. And one thing that really interests me is the sort of the network of minds and the network of grace, how we are influenced by other people. So, you know, in, in, in Literary Converts, Chesterton, Lewis, major influence on the 20th century. But here I was interested, obviously these are philosophers, but on page 220, um, as as about a third of the way down, as background to the debates concerning the natural law, we re read the treatise on law within St. John Thomas' Aquinas Summa Theologiae, and then Theologiae, and then he says um, further down, the distinction without opposition between Aquinas' account of the natural law and the revealed laws enabled Aquinas to maintain a distinction without opposition between the order of creation on the one hand and the order of redemption on the other. In other words, that Aquinas bridges the gap, if you like, between philosophy and theology. And then the the impact of this uh, uh, on, um, I, think, I think this is coming to the husband or the wife at this point that we're talking about. Um, next page, reading Aquinas at this time was for me like taking a breath of fresh air after gasping in a smoggy city. Now, as if the, the light's been switched on by being introduced to Aquinas. But then in the footnote here, we also have the fact, um, about eight lines down in footnote 11, it is worth noting that de Lubac also made some very positive contributions to Catholic theology, which also influenced me. Now, now sometimes we, people try to make a, you know, a conflict between you know, Thomism and, 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 and de Lubac, and uh, I, I found it sort of uh, good that this person can take the good from both, and that both of them were stepping stones on, on his or her conversion. Yes, I will say that even though Thomas Aquinas is not the Thomas Theologiae, it's not easy reading. And for certain personalities and types, it's, it's not as attractive as for others. But the little treatise on law, I think it's question 95 and the ones following that, uh, that is a gem, it's a jewel, and it is, uh, it's the most concise, clear, compreh comprehensive description of what law is that's ever been written, in my view. And so I can understand why someone would be very attracted to that. I do want to make a couple of maybe 
slight corrective comments on this footnote number 10 or number 11 here, which you referred to, mm -hmm. because he, he, he was involved with this group, uh, that movement called Radical Orthodoxy, the Protestant movement. And he says, uh, uh, such theologians lost the distinctiveness and meaningfulness of the theological notion of grace. It turns out that something similar would be, could be said for some 20th century Catholic theologians, especially de Lubac. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, the de Lubac did not... Uh, lose the distinctiveness of grace. That's what he's accused of, but it's a false accusation. And he goes on down below at the bottom of that footnote, uh, for the definitive critique and alternative to Dudelbach's understanding of the natural desire for God, see Lawrence Feingold, da-da-da-da-da. I'm sorry, but that's fine. I, I encourage people to read both. Uh, but to me, uh, Dudelbach is a mountain peak, and uh, Feingold barely makes it to the foothold, foothills. Uh, and if you really want to see this issue discussed succinctly uh, by one of the nation's press book called The Theology of Karl Barth by Hans Wilson Balthasar, the last part of the book is on nature and grace. And there he discusses uh, Thomas Aquinas. He discusses the Dubach. He has his own idea. And I think that's the best summary of the discussion that's been done in modern times. In any event, uh, I... I, 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 meant, I mentioned it to talk about the... the the, the fact that the convergence here in this particular case between St. Thomas, the influence of St. Thomas and St. Dulubak, and then you've raised the, uh, the differences, which, of course, I'm aware of. Well, and, of course, what got Dulubak into trouble was he, he wrote a book called Sur Naturel in 1947, just after the war. The paper shortage was so great that the, half the book was in thick paper and half was in thin paper. They couldn't get enough paper to do the whole book. Uh, but that was an interpretation of Thomas Aquinas. And what Dulubac claims to have done, and I believe his claim is justified and can be proven by evidence, he wanted to go back beyond Neo-Thomism and John of St. Thomas and the late medieval commentators to what Thomas actually said. Now, it can be disputed. Theologians dispute just like everyone else does. But it wasn't as Dulubac was anti-Thomist. In fact, I mean, he had tremendous influence in revivifying Thomas for those who were dissatisfied with the sclerosity or the sclerosis of what had become manual theology. Uh, okay, so we've touched on a, a sore point here, but I've made, my, I've made my say. I'm glad you were here to do that. Yes, indeed. And, you know, know, and, this... I, and I do agree. I mean, I'm, I'm aware, and I'm, not a, I'm, I'm neither a theologian or a philosopher, but I am aware that, 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 that neo-Thomism covers a multitude of virtues and a handful of sins. So... Uh, you know, there's yes. the, 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 the footnotes upon Aquinas or the problem, the various neo-Thomistic schools that differ with each other. And, you know, there's some institutions that are completely tied to one particular school of neo-Thomism. And that, you know, at this point, you know, what, how, you, uh, to what extent are we still in union with the man himself and his thinking? Well, you know, this, this question and this theme persist for the next few pages because on two, page 222... He actually talks about the uh, taking a class on ressourcement theologians, you know, who return to the sources of the Catholic faith, especially scripture and the fathers. And he was talking about, he goes on to talk about different theologians at Baylor University who uh, were influenced and inspired by this movement. But in his footnote, uh, again, you know, there's kind of a, um, uh, 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 a harshness toward these theologians that I think 
betrays what Father is hinting at here, that the author doesn't really understand what he's criticizing. That was my impression. We should bear in mind that we're criticizing the author here. I think we need, need to be clear about one thing. Uh, obviously, this is a little bit, bit, little bit confusing because this essay has two authors. And this part of oh, the essay is actually the wife and not the husband. So this oh, is Lindsay. Oh, right. Good point. I, I did lose so, sight yeah. of that. But yeah. I wondered yeah. if Father noticed also this footnote 14. And I did. I, and I, and I, I underlined where they, he speaks of these resources and theologians as they seem to me at times too fierce in their opposition. Well, you know, no one has ever described de Lubac as fierce <laughs> or Balthasar. Well, yeah, possibly. You might, you yeah. might, you might. He's on the edge of that, but uh, but I can understand. Hey, he's reading it. He, he sees problems with it. That's good. Let's have a debate, you know? Right. But then or she. The, or she, yeah. as the case may be. Or she, yeah. This is the wife. This is all the wife. All that we've discussed so far today is, is, is the wife section of it. But if we move on, so it's literally a change of uh, uh, scene. Uh, because uh, we now get into her spiritual life. And I found this quite touching, fourth line down on page 226. The next day I prayed the rosary and found that its focus on the mysteries of the life of Christ enabled me to meditate in a profound way with Mary and through her eyes on Christ's life and saving work. It was the first time I ever addressed Mary as someone with whom I could commune and whose prayers I could seek. Soon I began to ask other saints, especially the women doctors of the church, for their prayers. My feelings of loneliness as a woman in a male-dominated field were transformed into a deep sense of communion with those women saints. Yes, I marked that too for two reasons. One, the profound reason you mentioned, but also just to, for our readers and listeners here on the, on the third line, when the author says, when we bid one another farewell, that's our fault. It should have been bad, B-A-D-E. The past is B-A-D, not B-I-D. It's a common mistake. And eventually, before I die, it'll probably become uh, correct, you know. But uh, it's not. It's like, it's, it's like the disappearance of the word hatred, Father. I mean, I, you know, I read manuscripts all the time, and I, there's just there's certain things, you know, lie, lay, lane, and lay, lay, lay. That's always confused, you know. Yes. And then the one that I, I'm really off on a transit here, but... I can't stand the substitution of they with a singular verb and a singular subject, you know. Sometimes it's okay. Everybody decided that they would. Okay, that's right. But uh, he decided that they would. No, 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 I'm sorry. That we, well, we everybody is actually singular. It's supposed to be he. It is. Well, it's supposed to be, but, it, but it's kind of a common noun, however. So I, I, I even I leave a little bit of uh, leeway there, you know. Then you're more generous <laughs> than I am because I correct it when I find it in stuff I'm editing. Good. All right. <laughs> so uh, on that same page, 226, just a reference to mass and extraordinary form. It is kind of interesting that for several of these authors, uh, the extraordinary form has has been an attraction, put it that way. Yeah. Well, that's the, you know, again, that would be up to a point, that would be the path of beauty. Um, so you know, which is interesting and intriguing in itself, as we're talking about in a book here, about where philosophers are mostly talking about, you know, the, the, the path of reason. And I know we, it's perilous to try to separate these things, but nonetheless, it's a very sort of uh, logos-centric, rational approach, and, but it's still interesting that beauty uh, speaks to these people in, in, in Well, I'd like to point book. out that 
I, I did not notice that the extraordinary form per se is talked about that much, but liturgical prayer, as opposed to the sort of free form prayer that many of these Protestants telling their stories were used to, just the encounter of liturgical prayer at all was an encounter with beauty, which is why so many of them first went to the Anglican church and were right. struck by the beauty of the Anglican mass. And then because of the problems in the Anglican communion ended up coming over to the Catholic church. Yeah. And, and within the Catholic church is the pro problem with the uh, Novus Ordo not being celebrated uh, with due decorum, due form and with due beauty that leads people to the traditional mass because in there's fact, no I room, know in, a Protestant... no room in the extraordinary form for nonsense. That's you know, so, and there shouldn't be room for nonsense in the Novus Ordo either, but it's, it's tolerated. That's, That's the problem. Right. I, I know a Protestant man who was going to a high Anglican church, but was convinced that he needed to become a Catholic for all the reasons we've read about here. And what was holding him back was that his Anglican rite in his Episcopalian church was more reverent and more beautiful than the way the mass, Catholic mass, was being said just down the road at the Catholic church nearby. And in fact, I put this man in touch with you, Father Fessio, and you <laughs> helped him to find another parish in his area where it, it, it was still the Novus Ordo, but it was still much better than the one that he had yeah. walked into. Yeah. So I had, so, I had something similar. I, there's, there's a friend of mine who's an old man. who was actually best man at my wedding who had been away from the practice of faith for about 40 years. Um, and after we sort of known each other for probably, you know eight, nine years or something, he returned to the practice of the faith, but he was absolutely felt as if he'd gone somewhere strange yeah. because he'd come back and it wasn't a particularly reverent mass. Is this, is this even the same thing? Yeah. You know, and, and that, that broke my heart because it, it took seven or eight years to get him across the threshold again. And then he feels like a stranger when he does, you know. Now, I, would, I would say that phenomenal, phenomenologically and psychologically, the Novus Ordo, as often celebrated, even somewhat reverently, is so radically different from the extraordinary form as normally celebrated that it looks like you're in a new church, you know. Yeah, I was at Thomas More College, though, Father, this week, and there was a priest uh, yesterday or something that, uh, that, that celebrated the Novus Ordo Mass uh, ad orientum, uh, and the readings were in In fact, very similar to the way you do it. The readings were in English. Uh, the propers were in English. Uh, everything else was in Latin. Uh, the, the sung parts were beautiful. Uh, and, you know, that, I don't see why anybody would have any problem with that. I know there'll be certain types of fads that would, and that's many type of liberal Catholics that would. But for me, you know, that, that to me as, is as beautiful as the traditional Mass, and I'm very comfortable with both. And even uh, even though I do it that way, and I, I like the Latin ordinary, there's a lot of good people, and Vivian, you're one of them, who prefer to have it in English, and I, I accept that. It's good. To me, it, it, the more important part is it's ad orientum. You have an altar rail. You, you have male altar servers. Uh, you have chant. These kinds of things. Yes. Uh, which, and which and show... I love the chanted Latin and Greek, the Kyrie, in, the, in those parts of the Mass, you know. Um, and even... Even the Hebrew too, Hallelujah and Hallelujah. Yeah, I just, I just for my own weakness of of my own distracted mind, I find that uh, hearing the rest of it in English, the readings and everything, 
helps me to hear what I need to hear and pay it's attention. It's actually very funny. That, very funny, Vivian. It just shows a difference in sort of psych psychology because I'm the complete opposite. If I listen to the mass in English, because I because I can hear it, my mind tends to wander. Oh, Whereas Whereas in Latvian, I make a point of doing all the reading beforehand, and then it, 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 at, when I go, they, they've got the English and the Latin side by side, and I've read it in English first, so I've really sort of got it, and then I'm following the Latin and sort of. So my Latin is getting better at the same time, but I'm actually completely focused. Whereas I go to mass in English, you know, and I'm, if I'm not paying attention, then I, you know, I, I realize I haven't been listening for the last 30, 30 seconds, and I, I've missed it, you know. Um, the, the church is a garden. Let many flowers grow. Just keep yeah. the weeds out. Amen, keep brother, the weeds father. Out. Amen. Amen. On page 228, very three lines down, further and of great personal significance, this is the lady talking here, I discovered in the Catholic Church the deepest understanding and affirmation of my femininity in my service of the church as a female intellectual of any I'd encountered. When you think of all the criticism of the Catholic Church because it's anti-women, to see someone who is of a high culture and high intelligence saying, wow, here's the place I found my femininity most, you know, uh, appreciated. Yeah. That's beautiful. It is, it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Anything else going forward here? I have nothing else in this particular essay, but I'm happy to bow before whatever you two have. I'm happy to uh, go on to the next chapter. All right. I'm looking to see. I think I can agree with that. So let's move to Chapter 9, Traditions as Paradigms, a McIntyrean approach to the Catholic question. Now, McIntyre comes at the very end, which is interesting and good. But I find this another one of these uh, processes where you, you're Pentecostal, non-dominational, you become Anglican, and then it's a slippery slope. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a great tragedy. C.S. Lewis didn't slip all the way, but there we go. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I will say this, though, that slippery slope, if I may. But what they bring with them when they enter the church is that personal communion with Jesus and the word. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of Catholics are missing that in their, the way they're spiritually formed. If only, you know, when, when these Protestants come in with all of this zeal for reading and hearing the word of God in the Bible and this praying to Jesus in this personal way, um, they, of course it can go and become too so personal that it's bordering on irreverent, like that the proper distance, as Ignatius would talk about, the proper distance of reverence that always has to be between the creature and the creator and so on. But when they come into the church with that and they hold on to that, then they have a lot to offer the church. That's good. And it does enrich the church. At the same time, if I may compare this to marriage, of which I'm only indirectly uh, aware, you know, in terms of personal experience, uh, this love for Jesus, this personal sense of a connection with Jesus, we should try and keep that first flame burning all our lives. But the fact is, you get older, time goes on, you get in routine, right? Just like a marriage, uh, it's not honeymoon for the rest of the time. And in fact, I remember this one fellow, my, when I was a young man, I was a boy, I guess, he was Larry Johnson. He was vice president of Bank of America in Menlo Park. And uh, they, always, they always teased him because he didn't drink, you know. But Larry was a good guy, got along with everybody, Elf Club, Lions Club, all that sort of stuff, didn't drink. Uh, 
But behind his back, they'd say, oh, my gosh, Larry, look at that guy. He's really self-control, you know. So they'd tease him about it publicly, but privately they admired him for it. Okay, well, his wife uh, became deaf, all right, and, uh, and she, was, uh, she became uh, in a wheelchair, you know. And they couldn't communicate by talking anymore. And people asked Larry, well, how is that? She said, oh, that's fine. She said, we understand each other. Uh, we don't have to talk anymore. And I thought that was beautiful that, uh, you know, the, the fire of that communication in the beginning of the marriage was gone in the sense that now she couldn't talk anymore or couldn't hear. Uh, but they had a communication which was, was very deep, much more, much more deep, well, you know. If, if, if I may contribute to that a little bit, being married now for 38 years, it's true that there are times of, of, you know, just like your life with God, you know, there's, there's, there's more ardent times, there's drier times and so on. But I have to say that the relationship that I have with my husband 38 years later is deeper, more intimate, more beautiful, more incredible than when we were first married. And so I just, I don't want it. I don't want to give the impression that somehow, oh, well, you know, you get older and, you know, things putter out <laughs> or something like that. It It is true that there are changes and there are seasons and all of that. But that closeness, that intimacy, that bond, yes, that fire deepens with time and fidelity. And yes, if I got to the point where I were in a wheelchair or Glenn were in a wheelchair or I was deaf and he was blind or whatever, then yes, our love for each other would manifest through all of that too. But I wouldn't want to give people the impression that your love, the flame dies out because it doesn't. No, well, actually, and, and you're, you're making my point, but I, di- I didn't make it as way I, I wanted to or should now. Want to say. I, 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 I want to say that when you see Catholics going to mass, you know, they're, they're cradle Catholics and it looks like they're not paying attention or they're praying the rosary. You don't know. That could be a very deep, deep faith. Oh, that's true. You know, that, that has grown, but it's no longer as expressive outwardly as it might've been under the first first. And I'm not basing my observations on what I'm seeing outwardly. I'm basing my observations on deep conversations I've had with people who were raised Catholic and, um, you know, or even like my husband's mother, who was raised Catholic uh, and very faithful and pious all of her life, a uh, really solid woman, you know, but she went on a Curcio retreat or something like this, uh, you know, and, 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 um, and then had this whole awakening, like everything she'd been taught and the way she'd been trained by the nuns and all of that now coming <clears throat> into some kind of uh, personal focus that she hadn't had before. I'm only saying that... Um, that uh, that that the contribution that these converts are making is 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 a profound one, and and um, and it's something the church needs, just like what the church is offering to them in its history and its tradition and its wisdom right. and all of that is something they need. You know, it's not like it's just a one way street here. I wouldn't want to. No, but I but I'm saying what they come in like that, but after thirty years, if they live that much longer, it may not look quite the same. I'm not talking about what I it mean- looks like. I'm not talking about what it looks like. I'm talking about when you have spiritual conversations with people and their relationship with God, and they share that with you. And, you know, you want to help people have intimacy with God. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. I I just, uh, I'm I'm not sure conference have any particular uh, 
you know, franchise on that. No, no, That's no. All. I'm not saying them in general. I'm only saying that these people that were reading their stories and the never mind. It's okay. It's okay. We're here to converse and discuss. You know? I know, but I obviously, I what I'm saying you're taking offense to, and I'm not meaning any offense. I'm only saying that, that um, you know. Okay. Um, so we are uh, on the next chapter, and I don't think we're going to get through it. I mean, but we, we can, because we're almost a half hour already, right? Yeah, I mean, well, we, we, yeah, we have to I suppose we have to make a choice about whether we want to have an extra week, and there, there aren't any rules that we can't break here, or whether we just uh, go on for an extra five or ten minutes and be brief. I'm, I'm, I'm very, ha very happy either way. I, for me, I've got more than five minutes on this. Okay, chapter. good. I've, I've, I've got, I've got three or four things highlighted in this one, and a few in the in the final one. We've got two essays to go. I mean, I think it probably makes more sense to take them in a leisurely fashion rather than to not do them justice now. Well, let's do that, but let's get people prepared uh, for the next book, which will be this one, American Pilgrimage, Historical Journey Through Catholic Life in a New World. And we'll be prepared for the introduction and the first chapter, which is on Spain. And we'll see you next week. God bless everyone. If you enjoyed this discussion, Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.